Hello, I'm Jensen Beeler. And I'm Quentin Wilson. And together we are the Two Enthusiasts Podcast. The Two Enthusiasts Podcast. Oh, what a lovely tea party. Uh, I'm not going to get that reference. Is that a, a movie thing? It actually is. It's kind of... It's, <laughs> it's from Jay and Silent Bob Strikes Back, I think. Oh, that's good. I don't rem- remember where that would be. Should well, I go bang, bang, snoochie boochies, <laughs> snoochie boochies. <laughs> uh, Quentin, before we get too far down the rabbit hole, we should say that this week's episode is brought to you by Dainese and AJV. It is motorcycle gear that is inspired by humans. Dainese. Dainese. This is when you go to have dinner and it's easy. Dainese, right? No? Yeah, I mean, it's, Dain- it's, it's, three, it's, three, it's three syllables. Dainese. Dainese. yeah. But, okay. but I mean, I think like if an American wants to just get away with Dainese. Dainese. Dain, Dainese. Yeah. I think, I think like you're like 90% of the way there <laughs> and that's good enough in America. Yeah. Like that's a solid, that's a solid B. You can get through college on Bs, <laughs> let me tell you. All right. Just mm. phone that in, get your B. That's the Beeler plan. <laughs> Putting the the B Beeler plan Beeler. to higher education. Don't work harder for, for a B plus or an A minus. Don't work you can harder, just work smarter. Show up and get a B. I shouldn't say that. I think every teacher in, in the world that, that obviously listens to this podcast probably just cringed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, dude. Uh, 1.8. <laughs> 1. 1.8, whatever 1.8 would be. It's like, like a GPA. I, you couldn't get, I don't think you could get Out lower four? than. What's that? On a 4.0 grading scale? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that's, how, that's how I managed to squeak by high school. That was my high school grade point average, if that's what that is. It's GPA, right? Grade point average. So, Yep. I, I always enjoyed um, in law school, they, they said, you know, because they, they rank us. Law school is big on rankings. You're ranked for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, we, uh, one of our professors, you know, she's like, do you know what they call the... Uh, the law student that finishes that graduates last in their in their class, hmm. a lawyer. <laughs> I was like, I like the cut of your jib. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> what do they call the person second from last? Is there a, <laughs> like is it like lawyer for gold star? Because I just want to know. I want to know how hard I got to work here. Can I still be Esquire? Is I'm it just, Esquire? Quentin, it's good to see you on a beautiful sunny day in Portland. We just we were just outside embracing the vitamin D, getting rid of our seasonal affect disorder. I washed my car mostly because Roberto from Dainese got in my car the last week and was like, "Oh, your car's really dirty." <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah, that's because I haven't cleaned it in like a year and a half." Yeah. So I should go do that, and I did. So Roberto, if you're listening, my car is now clean. Yep. You will not get hepatitis if you sit in it again. <laughs> of course, you got the hepatitis from before. <laughs> if you don't know that yet, uh, surprise. <laughs> you might want to check your your healthcare premiums before you go to the hospital. That would be the irony of somebody that works for a gear company not being not wearing enough protective gear to, to ward off your hepatitis. <laughs> or the diabetes. <laughs> the diabetes. Well, that's that's all you and the do, man. That's you and the do. And now we get to sit in this room, in this dark room, because we have to cover up the soundproof it all yeah. up yeah no. oh well i'll be out there soon enough the sacrifices we make yeah for sure for you for you the listener enjoy so i had a good weekend down in california doing track day stuff yeah tell me about it i went us to, about it tell us all tell us all i'm not, not just you i'm gonna share it with everyone yeah sure i went down to thunder hill a track that's near and dear to our hearts yep but i didn't do the the, the course that most people do i did the west course which is really hard to find uh, a track day that only does the West course. Usually they like to 
connect it to the original course, which is now the east course. Well, that would make it like a super long lap. Five mile. So yeah. like now they, they distinguish it. There's which the two mile like, west course, the three mile east course, and the five mile mega course. And that sounds like a lot of fun. We've said this before. Like the, do the five mile, oh, that's great. Until you actually do it, and then it's kind of a pain in the butt because you could be having a bad lap or something could be wrong with your bike and you just start the lap and then you've got to go a really long way before you can get back in. And you don't learn as much because you're not hitting the same corners as often. It's of note to, to do that. That And my, my bigger issue is the East course is really fast and really flowing. It's great for leader bikes. I mean, if you're on a leader bike, you're going to get spoiled on it. Uh, anything smaller than a 600, it kind of gets, it's just maybe a little too big. I don't like taking my supermoto out on it. I did like three laps on my Husky on You'd it. You'd wrap the crap out of that thing. It'd be just like full RPM yeah, for it, a lot of the laps. It's, it's not, not healthy for it. For it's sure. not fun. It's not good for the bike. And and truthfully, like you're not really doing any supermoto stuff. The t- turns are so big and yeah. long. You're, you're doing more of a road race style, which is fun on a bike that weighs like 250 pounds. Yeah. You know, something different, but it's, it's too big. Now compare that to the West Course, man. I don't. I would hate to ride a leader bike around that around that circuit. A six hundred almost seems too big. On the Supermoto, it was great. I took out my uh, Hypermotard, which I guess is a leader bike, but it only makes like one hundred and sixteen yeah, horsepower, or whatever. Yep. Uh, and that was like the perfect bike for it. We did it in the reverse direction, which I don't think too many people have gotten gotten to do yet. Uh, so this is a new thing. The would the, that be counterclockwise or clockwise? Be clockwise. Yep. Okay. And we didn't run the infield, which I was pretty bummed about. But looking at the course, that's probably the the smart decision, safety wise. That is not that is not really a course that was made to be run in the reverse direction. I think it's I think it's okay to do it, but when you come on to the front straight, uh, there's a little uh, chicane, and man, if you went down there, you're gonna hit a you're gonna hit a wall pretty quick. Um, that's my, that was my only concern with it in the reverse direction, but it's, it was a lot of fun in the reverse direction. I've ridden it the normal counterclockwise direction with the infield and had a a blast. That was a few years ago. Um, unfortunately the weather didn't cooperate for me to go down and do it in that direction. That was Saturday's track day. Sunday's was in reverse, but I had a lot of fun. Uh, perfect track for the hyper had a blast on it. Thank you for lending me your, your tire warmers. Mm, mm -hmm. Um, you know, I've never really done uh, a track day on my own with tire warmers. It's yeah, always been like press launches and things like that. But that, that's an, a notable thing because you were talking about the uh, the effect of it at the Yamaha R6 launch, where you know the one engineer was freaked out because you were right. one of the first to go out right. without warmed up tires. Right. Uh, you know, still wet to drying course on slicks. Is that right? Or on, uh, that was the, on the R10 DOT. tire, is the DOT race tire. So which that's was a thing. A thing. You know that thing cold was very different than it was warm sure so that's the this is a a thing that was brought up multiple times to you was because you were asking about like you know i know but i mean what are the pitfalls and i want to do this and everybody has to chime in with their with their take on tire warmers at track days right it makes sense on in a race situation to get the tires hot and always be on the track with hot tires period and stop but in the on the track day scenario it actually sometimes isn't the right deal and you and there's a lot of it's complicated right it is right so for me if you can't keep the tires warm then it's dangerous to have tire warmers and this has happened to me where i go out in a 40 to 45 degree cold day and i get on out in the first lap and it's like holy crap grip city right and this happened to me at thunder hill on a street fighter grip city 
awesome, stoked, but not enough time on the front end because you're it's still in the morning and you're not warmed up and you're not pushing it. So I wasn't able to keep the heat in the front tire and I ended up tucking the front in a low speed corner, like completely not even close to the limit. Like I was just going through the corner the same way I had been, but it's a long lap and I wasn't thinking about it and right on the ground. Didn't get damaged. Got was able to get right back up and get back out there, but it was still like, a, ah, that's what happened to me. I was not getting the same feedback, but I wasn't paying enough attention and I didn't keep it hot. Well, and that, that too can be the travails of, of the the early morning sessions. Like I always worry about the first and second session of a track day. And, I, and sometimes I'll even sit out the, the, the first, first one for sure. The first one. Very often, yeah. Especially if I know like I did something yesterday. I went for a run or maybe I rode up the track yesterday. Maybe I don't have the energy or the fitness to do the whole day. Yeah, I will sure. sit out a morning session knowing that the last session of the day when half the people are packing up their trucks aren't going to be out on the track and the sun's already be beaten down. It's going to be awesome. Why would I give up the best session of the day in exchange for the worst session of the day? But, but to your point... Sometimes those early morning sessions, especially like back east where we can have, you know, near freezing temperatures at night, you yeah. come off, you can come off the warmers, have warm tires, and the track is so cold that you Suck actually, you've right actually lost heat from, from the first lap to like the second or third. My, like a because lot. of the rolling yep. on, along the course, because the course doesn't come warm enough. And the air that's going across yeah. the tire. It, they definitely cool, unless you are on the binders hard and on the gas hard. And pushing the limit, which you're not normally doing in that first session. You're usually just, you know, getting at the cobwebs and kind of getting used to the bike and or doing just all the learning things. the track. Like in this situation, we were one of the first. I once we weren't the first, but we're probably one of the first three to three to five track groups ever to go on that course in that direction. Yeah, without so the, that, especially so the without lines that weren't, weren't, So no one knew where they were going. Yeah, sure. You're learning a track, etc. So that's that goes into track day. I don't know, etiquette? No, nah, it wouldn't be etiquette. Best practices, track yeah. day best practices for Standard me. Standard operating procedure. It depends on the on the track day. It depends on the situation for me as a as an instructor. So I have, I mean, I can't imagine how many laps as a person that is either instructing or kind of course working, just keeping an eye on everybody. So I did started doing that uh, with Pro Italia back in 99 or 2000, and I've been doing it fairly consistently since. It's been a couple years now. Since I worked with a local, a local uh, uh, provider, track day provider, but you you go out in every session, and that of course is easy. It's usually usually the the slow group. I hate to call it slow. Let's call it the beginner group first, then then intermediate, then expert. Sometimes it's not though. I think at Moto Corsa track days, it's expert first, then intermediate, then beginner. And that, that every track group is different. And it was funny because the one we I ran with the uh, fun track days with a Z group which is a new track day outfit in, in northern california um and they do it kind of weird where it's the beginning of the day it is or the beginning of the yeah the beginning of the day it's beginner intermediate well actually they call it what's their i forget what they call the beginner group the middle group is called advanced and the expert class is extreme of course but whatever yeah right uh, but you know, yeah, so the advanced guys go out third, and then after lunch, the advanced guys started out, then intermediate, then beginners, which is kind of a weird, like they reverse the order, which is a little yeah, strange in my book. It is. I'm sure there's Just a reason. One. There's, I'm sure there's a reason for it. I don't understand it. It seems to like be six to half a dozen in my well, mind. Well, oh, the, the reason would be that you're you're going to have classroom sessions if in some contracted organizations, and Motocourse is one of them, and a bunch of them are like this where the beginners 
are doing classroom and they're not they're they're either forced to or that is a, a service provided so they are the uh, when it starts it's like everybody go to the classroom writers meeting first sure. then every all the, then all beginners, the, the beginners go to the classroom to, yeah. to have a first sit down and chat and then then you go to intermediate and then by that time uh the 20 minutes usually 20 minute sessions right that's usually how it works so in this case that that it depends on the, the how that goes and for me as an instructor I would not use tire warmers because every time we go out, whether I was in uh, beginner or expert, I'd ease in anyway. And it helped to ease in the people behind me or in front of me or around me or whatever. Because um, by the time it got hot and heavy, no matter what, I was usually as quick or quicker than the, the, than the quickest people there uh, uh, just because, right? Uh, but in the, in the beginner group, who cares? You're just warming up your tires and it's good it was. It's just good process to go out and just ease in, right? Ease in, and then for the for the beginners that are following you, for sure, right? That you need to to teach that. I think I think there's a lot to be learned there. I think you almost do yourself a disservice as a new track day rider to come out with a tire warmer. It's the same way I think you probably do yourself a disservice as a motorcyclist to 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 jump straight into like a leader bike, like like I did. Yeah. Like I, you know, I'll raise my hand and say mea copa because I was one of those guys that went out. And got a leader bike really quick, and I, you know, my track bike's an R1, and I'm spoiled. Like I hop on a 600 now. Like when we did the R6 launch, like the first couple laps, maybe even the first couple sessions, I'm kind of sitting there going, like, all right, I got to wrap my head around. I can't just, you know, squirt it into a corner and then hit the throttle and expect to, to make up my time or make up my mistake by by using the bike. Like I'm gonna have to use a little, a little craft here. I'm gonna have to actually, you know, operate a motorcycle if I want to get a good lap time here and learn how to carry my corner speed and learn how to hit my apexes and my braking and and manage, you know, the fact that I only have what R6 has got like 120 horsepower at the crank kind of thing instead of like 200 horsepower now that we're seeing on the superbike. So it makes you ride differently and it and quite frankly it spoils them. I think tire warmers are the same way. Sure. Um, because I think there's a lot to be learned from going out on cold tires, understanding how that that tire operates, like the the R10 tire from Bridgestone when I went out at the R6 launch, feeling how it did when it was cold and the feedback that it gave me. I would never have known that had I never gone out on it cold because it was so different from when the tire was hot and ready to go. And it was that and and to to prove the point further, it was interesting. I went and did a uh, supermoto track day up at Sears Point. Uh, the day after the the Thunder Hill track day on my Husky. And I don't really have a good lift situation for, for the Husky, and I didn't use the tire warmers, basically, is what I'm trying to say. You, so had, was, no, you had no stands for that, yeah. Not uh, not one that I could get both tires off the ground yeah. easily. I have, like, the motocross stand. You've sure. seen my motocross stand. It's yeah. horrible. Yeah. So I went out on cold tires, as I'm used to doing, but it was interesting just because on those kind of uh, courses, since they're so short – it's like three or four laps before the tires really come in and seeing how I run Pirelli super courses on my Husky, uh, super course SP twos, I think. And a DOT with the with a typing. DOT yeah. race tire. Uh, it's the harder compound of the two, I believe. Yeah. And it takes three to four laps to warm them up. And yeah, the first few laps, man, I was going, I wasn't thinking I was going that quick and I don't think the course was that warm. We kind of had a partially cloudy kind of day. And yeah, a couple turns. There's especially there's a little chicane that would go through, and I would slide both tires going through it until like the fourth or fifth lap, 
you know, it took that long for the tires to come in on, on that side and in that turn and to give me the grip that I needed. But it was interesting to see because the laps are so much shorter, you can feel the progression of like, okay, you know, the first lap I'm going around and I'm sliding everywhere. Second lap, okay, I'm still kind of sliding here and here and here. Third lap, okay, I'm only sliding in this turn. Fourth lap, okay, now everything's gripping and it feels good. And I'm just managing, you know, slides when I'm on the throttle or, or whatever I'm doing. And that's not a condemnation on the tires. That's, that's, no, that's kind no. of a combo of the, the bike, which is super light. A lot of supermotos, it took... Uh, act of God to keep heat and tires. When I was working for Graves, uh, when I was crew chiefing for Doug Henry, that was one of the things they would, we would sipe the tires, which means putting small slits in them like you would for like winter weather. Do we'd sipe the front of the, uh, and not the rear, not for traction in the dirt, but just to get the, the tires squirming around enough to get heat into it. Cause otherwise it was really difficult for them to do so. Cause they're, yeah, they're using the front brake a lot, but not compared to a road race bike, and that's what most of those tires are manufactured for that are, that they're racing with. So your tires, what are on those on that um, Husqvarna? I mean, it's just not a very heavy machine. Great example. In fact, I, I I probably should have mentioned this earlier. Both my Hyper and my Husky run the same tires. Yeah. So so to see that difference of of running that tire at Thunder Hill on a nearly liter bike, you yeah. know, Hyper Motard. And to see how quick they heat it up there versus running it on a bike that weighs almost 200 pounds less. Similar ambient temp, you think? Pretty similar. Yeah, yeah both days were kind of, you know, And sun 60. matters, but, you know, clouds, they might still be cloudy, but, you know, they're dispersing the rays. You're still getting UV rays on. You can get the track pretty freaking hot with clouds. That was one thing I always noticed when I had, I would have to uh, gauge the temperature of the track. Yeah. And I would write that down in my notes uh, at any given track in any given session. It was always good to note the track temp. You'd stick the probe into the asphalt. You'd walk out a few paces into the pit lane, stick the probe. And you'd be surprised at the, like, if it was a cloudy day, as long as it was a ambient temp was up, it still gets plenty hot on that asphalt. It's still soaking it up. So you don't just assume that because it's cloudy that it's going to be cold. Sure. Absolutely. Interesting. Interesting to see the, the, the difference with using the warmers. It was, I can see why people do it. It was great to be able to just get right out of the box, get on the gas, give it a go. Uh, I was out there with um, my buddy Wilder from, from Moto Guild. And he didn't have any warmers, you know, so he was slumming it like I usually do. And, you know, yeah, sure enough, first lap, I would just drop him because I can get on the pace pretty quick. And he's still putting heat into the tires on on his bike. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, um, I guess now we're not riding with each other because I was a jerk and I took off without you. Um, Here, here's, how I, here's how I would say I do it. It depends on the bike, it depends on the track, and depends on what I'm doing at the track day. If I'm just there to have fun and I'm on a uh a street bike of mine i will not use warmers and i will ease in and that helps keep me at a sane pace for, with a bike that i do not want to crash even though i know i can i'm not like going to do that i want to take it easy and if i have street tires that are made in such a way that they are happier when they are eased in and they are they grip fairly well when they're cold which is a lot of the good street tires in the Pirellis that I tend to use are like that. I have a set of some sort of Michelin something or others that came on my bike when I bought it used um, that I note, noted they just grip really well in the cold and wet. So I have no issue showing up to the track day without any warmers. But if I'm on my A48 race bike with race spec tires that need to be hot and I know that I'm going to go out in that 
in that fast session, even in the morning, I'm going to go in that session and I'm going to haul ass right off the bat. And I'm on an uncompromising race bike that really isn't any fun to ride if you're going slow and it's almost difficult, then I will use warmers for sure because that's what I'm used to riding. And that's like the red mist that you get. It's almost it's almost the same for me as riding a bike with reverse shift or not. I can switch back and forth reverse shift to, to standard shift. That's yeah, on the same way. And with quick shift. One up and five yeah. down, one down and five up. That's what yeah. for those of you that don't quite understand what we're talking about. So for years, I had a street bike with reverse shift. And when I started racing uh, YSR 50s, ironically, they the way their transmissions work and the way the chassis works, they had to be standard shift. So I was racing street shift and and street riding race shift when I first started racing. So I had to learn that. And then I was also working in a motorcycle shop and having to constantly get on street bikes. So it was, it was a, it was a balance between that. Then when I started racing and then had street bikes that were all race shift after a while, that was just what I rode. Everything I had, had that, that was good until I started riding dirt bikes. Dirt bikes are a whole lot more difficult, but I never have an issue with it. If I get on a road race bike with a standard shift and get on track, I will invariably downshift when I mean to upshift and nearly high side myself almost every time. But if I get on a dirt bike, I've never I've never missed shift thinking that I'm going one way or the other. It's just a different thing. You're in a different seating position. You've got a different type of red mist mentality. No, it's, a, it's a different muscle memory. Yep. And it's and it's very and we know we know from science that a lot of that is based on uh, the situation. Like you know when you're getting on that dirt bike, there's a switch in your head. That's saying like, hey, I'm getting on the dirt bike. I'm going to be standing up and doing this. When I'm standing up, I click down and that puts me into first gear and blah, 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 blah. You just, you just learn that from the, an environmental point of view almost. Yep. And it's the same thing when you hop on a race bike. You're like, this is my race bike. This is how this works. My R1, uh, for a long time, I had reverse shift. And, um, you know, I, and it was easy to hop on that and hop on a different bike because I was like, this is my R1. This is how it rides. This is how I ride it. Boom. It's it's like its own little self-contained kind of thing. But for me, like it's always I've always been able to switch back and forth very easily. Maybe that first or second shift, I think in my head, okay, gotta go up to get into the gear or go down to get into the gear I want. And it's the same thing with quick shifter, like, okay, it's a quick shift. Now, I mean, you don't even have to clutch them in. So you just click through the gears. Maybe that first or t- first or second shift, I have to a little bit think about it. But once I'm there piece of cake i know other people struggle with it we had a couple guys at the um no, i shouldn't say a couple i can think of one person in particular the r6 launch was having a lot of trouble with the quick shifter just because they just weren't used to quick shifters sure um and that can catch you out but and sometimes people are used to really good quick shifters oh, well, i remember that too, right uh alana myers was on the 1299 and uh this was at that helmet launch that awry helmet launch a couple oh, we years were ago both, oh, we were both yeah, we were there yeah i remember when she got off of the 1299 everybody else was like dude that's rad because it shifted up and down right, right? so not at that time not many bikes had that no, it was one of the few yeah and her race bike of course had that and she was like Neh. and i was like that's funny because she's used to a super knife edge rad well-sorted race bike whatever suzuki thing she was riding at the time and it got on this big swilly and you know some of it is maybe she's just a, big, a quick shifter snob <laughs> she could be maybe well, she's just like Ugh, italy well, <laughs> yeah but you know what there is a bit of that with and with the power characteristics of a bike i will that say change the way a shifter will work right and i'm trying to remember this is this is gonna rack my brain if, if it was 11.99 or 12.99 
but the the first iteration of that quick shifter wasn't nearly as good as the second or third iterations. Like there's there's definitely been I think a learning curve for the OEMs and in, in putting quick shifters that, on street bike production bikes. Here's the deal. What it is is the kill time and the dwell. So how quickly it kills and how long it kills needs to be programmable in each gear to do it right. Um, and it'll work. Like the, you can get kill shifters. You've been able to get it from 20 years that just do a, you just set the, the dwell and the kill time and that's all you can do. And it's just the same in every gear. Okay, fair enough. But if you want to do it right and you don't want to damage transmission gears, here's the, here's the key is that they have had to, they had to, I think, have a safety factor so that you weren't going to round off every dog and slot in the transmission half shifting uh you know i don't know how to describe this so most kill shifters you're used to using at or within the full power full torque and uh, you know pro- properly that's when you you're use gonna be, it you're gonna be shifting at peak torque right or, or peak and, power and that's what depending on what your program is that's what they're designed for right but if then you're just cruising down the street and right. you use it right it can just go clunk, clunk, right and right. not engage correctly and it, it's a problem so i think the early ones were kind of a safety factor for that and then later ones they've gotten it they've gotten it focused down a little bit better is that hp4 or whatever it was bmw fancy s1000rr holy crap just an amazing quick shifter and Up, the mv augusta one's really good too i should say sure. I, I i've I don't think I've gotten on a bike recently where it's been like really bad, but like the Ducati sticks out in my head because I just remember it like being not so great in the beginning and then got better. It sure. got better over time. And then when they did the up down, I was like, yeah, that's pretty good. I got on Shane Turpin's R1, uh, what was it, about a year and a half ago? It was right after I broke my collarbone. It was the, like the first track day I had back after I got my collarbone plated. And his bike had a, um, I don't know what system on it. It wasn't a Yamaha system, but it was full up and down and it was tight and it was right. And it was, it was cheater status. Like for yeah. sure. Like he, he easily was getting tens of tens of tens of tens of seconds on a lap because of that thing. Cause it was for sure. set up for sure. No, a lot of people discount a quick shifter as like, meh, it's not that big of a fuck. Yeah, it is. It's huge. Like it's a, it's definitely of note for sure. What are your thoughts on, um, on, guys that up that do clutchless upshifts and in terms of longevity for a transmission or engine well with you mean with or without a quick shifter without a quick shifter because i know i like i can remember a couple bikes that i've had where if you're going down the front straight you can go up a gear without using the clutch if you just kind of yeah there's no problem as long as you have the feel for blipping the throttle or you know off throttle just a little bit there's no issue with that yeah yeah i have no issue with that whatsoever i mean you would know if you're if you're not able to do it correctly same with downshifts though you can clutchless downshift all day long it's just have to match the revs in a very specific way you know it's it's part of the deal okay Okay. um a lot of people would do that i I mean that now in this day of of uh slipper clutches Shoot, I remember on my 125 road race bike, that was the first time I was able to just go click, 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 click without any clutch and just oh, let it out. Oh, yeah. Because it has no engine braking. There's no, right? And it didn't matter. You, you want to talk about cheater status. Slipper clutches are awesome. Right? So you just click, 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 and then let that out, and it kind of does the work for you uh, as far as guessing which ratio you should have been. So if you happen to be, you happen to go down too many, it'll kind of give you that that feel in the beginning and then you can upshift if you need it or if you don't go enough it'll just kind of it'll be a little poochy but then you can shift again and it'll it's just a bit of a compliant element in the system that 
that makes it even yet again easier. There's multiple reasons why slipper clutches are easy, but that's for sure one of them is that you can be a little less precise in some ways, depending on how fast you're going. For for middle range riders, it helps with that. If a, if a very fast racer doesn't get the shifts, of course, it's still going to really upset the chassis if they do it wrong, right? Well, that was another interesting thing between the Hyper and the Husky because the Hyper obviously comes with a slipper assist clutch from the factory. Yeah. Um, my Husky, I don't run a slipper clutch on it just because, I don't know, that... Because well, it's a Husky and it probably like cost a small fortune to have that one slipper clutch that fits that. They, they, all, they all cost a lot. You know, they're all like a thousand plus dollar yeah, but add-on trying to find one for that it's probably a little bit them. extra special no, fuckery, no not as hard as you think well then you should get one yeah but i've just yeah right you know let, let's worry about the the oil in the air box before you we worry about the slipper <laughs> clutch right but it's just interesting because it's that was the other part of going back and forth was you know playing a lot with with slipping the clutch and, and kind of trying to get the back to step out when I was at Thunder Hill versus having you know and doing it the easy where it's just like oh I'm just gonna get on the brakes yeah click down a bunch of gears let go of the clutch kind of do my little feather with the rear brake and I'm through no issues and and, and it's easy to, to modulate and play with from there on the husky though man you got to do it the old school way and you're feathering the clutch and you're you know it's this game of clutch and brake and and turning and it's the whole the whole nine yards. And you're like, wow, this is a lot harder to do when you don't have a little cheater slipper clutch. Well, and what Jensen's describing, it's it might be difficult for a lot of listeners to understand. It's basically hacking it out or letting the getting the rear sideways. Yeah, my slipper clutch is my left hand. Yeah, right. Basically. So getting it getting it slideways going into a corner. A lot of people think it's rear brake, and on a lot of no. cases, it is rear brake, well, but not every case. And so in the a rear brake is a part of it. But a little bit of it. I want to. I want to stop you just because I think there are some people that think that backing it in means locking up the rear wheel yeah, with the rear brake. Make, that's what I'm trying to make. Which clear. nine times out of ten is going to get you in a lot of trouble. Yeah, it's going to high side you the other yeah. way. It's going to yeah. be a, a corner entry high side. So that's why I want to make sure everybody's listening yeah, yeah, is understanding yeah. what oh. we're talking about. Right. So the do not try this at home. This is high level stuff. You. Not not for beginner use. No, for sure. But this is how it works. If right. you don't know, that's this is how you learn. As you'll see, uh, say a dirt bike racer at any given supercross or motocross track sliding a dirt bike into a corner. Yes, that is often rear brake. Okay, yes. fair enough. So that's very often you're trying to modulate with the rear brake. Uh, a road race bike going from, I don't know, 140 miles an hour to a 40, 60, 80 mile an hour corner um, there, you know, it depends on the racer. A, a lot of racers use a little bit or a lot of rear brake. It depends on the racer and it depends on the corner, the bike, etc. But often they're clicking down a couple gears and letting out the clutch in a manner that, you, you know, you're matching the engine speed to the rear wheel speed. And depending on the ratio you've, you've selected, you can upset the chassis quite heavily by getting it into a situation where the engine speed and the rear wheel speed delta is, is, is huge. But you can use that delta for your advantage to let it back out a little bit, or as you as we say, backing it into a corner. But it lets the rear wheel kind of start coming around to the uh, uh, around the outside to the front a little bit, and that can be an advantage going into a corner while you're threshold braking and get you pointed in the right direction, or give you the chassis feel that you need, or allow you to break deeper into the corner and get the power on at the apex, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, that is using the clutch 
And, you know, back in the day before slipper clutches, that was, that was, you're still doing the same thing, but it would be much more keenly interesting for a rider to have that skill set to be able to do it based on the clutch alone. First time we ever saw that heavily was Aaron Yates on a, I think it was the, at the time that SRAD GSXR 600 from 97, 98, that era, 96, 97, 98, whenever that first 600, you would see him back in those things in big time. And it was of note. And everybody in the paddock would talk about it because Aaron was doing it notably more than anybody else out there. And it was all on clutch, right? And it was really interesting to watch. And that was the first time I was like, oh my God, it was so far beyond me. And it took me 15 years to be able to even do it myself on a road race bike. And now I doubt I could do it on command. Like if I was going into turn one at, at PIR, I highly doubt that I could do that right now. I, I would On a bike without a slipper clutch. Oh, for sure. But I'm even saying on my 848, it's something that takes a fair amount of... uh cojones to just do in the general in my opinion but it's a beautiful smooth easy thing when you do it once you get it it's not violent it's not weird it just feels right and that that is that's the hardest thing to try and explain but it takes threshold breaking you know you're really unloading the rear wheel and it feels really good that's the big part of it right like you it is a full body process you're going to use all four of your appendages without a slipper clutch at least so even with you're still going to be doing some stuff you're going to have to to modulate the clutch you don't have five appendages not anymore <laughs> i don't want i don't want to talk about it all right let's just let's just move on do you mind if we move on okay we're gonna move on all right thank you um <laughs> but that's what makes it so hard because so like on the husky I've got to be feathering the clutch with my left hand. I got to get ready to modulate the power when I come through the turn with my right hand. I'm clicking through the gears with my left foot and I'm applying uh, a little bit of rear brake on the Husky usually. But I'm also, before I'm getting on the gas with my right hand, I probably should have said this first, I have to be on the brake super hard because I need to unweight that rear wheel enough that I can get it to move without having to use a lot of pressure. On the rear wheel, if you know, yeah. if you understand what I mean, pressure. Yeah. When I say pressure, I mean through the transmission and through the rear yeah. brake. So it is that like you really have to be on the binders. Like if you're just gonna kind of, you can't slide the bike through when you're just poking along. Sure, no. Um, and then if you're on the like something on a hyper with a slipper clutch, it's a little bit easier because you just click through the gears you need. At Thunder Hill it was like down three, drop the clutch, let that figure out what the heck it's gonna do, and then I I can focus on if I need re- more rear brake to to break it out farther, get on the on the brakes on the front a little bit harder get on the gas a little bit quicker but a good example would be i I think maybe a lot of listenership will remember the story of me racing that six hour endurance on that old like late 70s i couldn't get that thing to hack sideways to save my life and if i did on the rear brake it would be a violent horrible feeling just it would it would go sideways for a second and then snap and it, it just wasn't good i was trying because it feels good to do that in some cases but my skill set wasn't enough to do that old thing. I would have to add more lean. I was going to say, you got right? to have a little lean angle. If you add more lean, but then on a bike with a 21-inch front wheel with an Avon tire on it, I wasn't going to trust that lean to not put me on the ground, right? It's kind of like, this is this is an interesting analogy. It's kind of like uh, uh, re-entering the Earth's atmosphere. You come in a little too shallow, you're going to bounce off the atmosphere. You come in a little too steep, you're going to burn up in the atmosphere. You like there's like a narrow window uh, yeah. where you've got to like kind of come right in. It's the same. It's the same yeah, on, sure. a, on a motorcycle. That's why they get paid the big bucks to do that because it's it takes. Yeah. Uh, but that for me 
is the most critical skill. I think a lot of people can turn it and burn it on the exit and get the bike sideways on power. Sure. I think is a lesser skill than Still being difficult. able to do it. No, absolutely. But I'm saying if I had to pick the one that's most difficult, it's corner entry braking. That's where most of the lap time is made, period. And then also knowing when to stop braking so that you can have super amount of roll speed and get on the throttle quicker. That, for me, the moment up from the from the threshold break point to the, to the let go point is more critical for any racer than the on throttle sure. point. Sure. I would say like the, the spinning it up as you come out of the exit of the turn is, is way easier because all it is, is lean angle and throttle. And, and well, nowadays it's like traction control settings. Yeah, sure. It's, it's a lot of his electronics. And it, it's still hard. Don't get me wrong. Sure. But it's way easier because like I said, like now I'm just turning my wrist. Instead of like, I got all my all my stuff's going on. The real trick is piecing it all together. Oh, sure, of course. You know that's you know, and then you're gonna crash a couple times while you try and figure it out. And that would be an interesting thing to talk about. And perhaps we can find somebody at Coda that we can just chat with one of the racers about the electronics on entry and how critical it is to get the the blipping. It's auto blip, like we were talking about yeah. on a pretty high level auto blip, and how that and other electronic things can be helping to get that right feeling from threat from the beginning of breaking to the end of breaking right It'd be an interesting uh, question for a lot of these high level i'd love to be able to do that so we should try and do that uh quentin we should probably take a quick break and uh then come back and i got some news items i want to talk to you about okay so quentin most people don't know that agv and dinese are actually sister companies and that's kind of a big deal in the industry because that means that the two brands are able to collaborate when they make their products. So their new Pista helmet, the Pista GPR, and the new airbag suits are actually designed to work together with each other. So in, a, in an aerodynamic fashion or in a like a functional structural fashion? Both. Both. So like the aerodynamics are, are worked together. You know, they're in the wind tunnel and they're in their yeah, testing sure. and all things. Because that the Pista for sure has a very long kind of a, a spoiler on spoiler, the back. yeah. And the Corsa does as well, but the Pistas looks like it's a little bit extra. Well, that's the thing with the new piece of GPR, the spoiler is actually bigger than the previous version for that reason. They're one of the few brands in the industry where the leather suit and the helmet on your head have been designed to work together, which is a big deal when you have an airbag sure. system on that's going to expand and and to... Yeah, you want it to make sure that it expands correctly without uh, hitting your head in some weird fashion. Impinging your mobility, all of that. Sure. Where can you find these? Good thing you asked, Quinn. <laughs> so Dainese has factory D stores in three locations right now, San Francisco, Orange County, and Chicago. They're building new stores in Orlando and New York, which will be out in the next month or two. And a store in Los Angeles will be opening by the end of the year. They're staffed with highly knowledgeable, highly trained people that can get you fitted into the right gear and not only the right leathers, but also the right helmet and Get right you on. a whole system from head to toe. One of the only companies in the motorcycle industry that can protect you from head to toe. So pretty cool stuff from Dainese and AGV. Excellent. Let's get back to the show. Right on. Okay. And we're back. Uh, Quentin, a lot of stuff has happened in the news. I don't think we're going to get through all the things we talked about pre-show, but we'll try our darnest. Let's try it, man. Let's Gatling gun these things. Uh, da, 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 da. Did you? <laughs> we, I know you and I talked about this when it, when it came out. Uh, the title of it was, India's struggled to sell millions of vehicles before tougher emission laws come into effect. Yeah. And I, I think first my first reaction was, what? There was India. All I can think of is just same with like Shanghai, pictures of vast cityscapes just 
inundated with pollution. But I mean, I guess that's the point. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. And it's interesting. I didn't actually know a lot about um, Indian emission laws and how, what they're doing over there before this story came out. So the, the background a little bit is, is that India is modeling their emissions code off of the European Union's emission standards. So when we talk about Euro 3 and Euro 4, that's very similar to what uh, India's is, which is called the Bahret stage. I might be mispronouncing that. Bahret? They, they abbreviate it just down to BS3 and BS4. Okay. Um, so BS3 is very similar to Euro 3. In fact, they're almost exactly the same, except for the uh, measuring, uh, what do they call it? standards the the conditions measuring conditions for for the standards so like i think the european union's at like oh you measure it at 10 degrees celsius oh, okay. well it doesn't get 10 degrees celsius in india very often so they measure it at 30 degrees celsius yeah sure uh so there's a couple like kind of environmental things that they change for the for the testing other than that very very similar in terms of what they're measuring at the tailpipe oh, one thing of note of this is i think a lot of people are like why do why would i give a crap about india well, there's a billion people there, at least. Yeah. Probably more at this stage. Talking about 13 to 15% of the world's population. In one place. So, yeah, it does make a difference. And yet, no, it might not be the greatest nation on earth like America is, but there's still a lot of people that drive, right? There's so. a ton of, well, yeah, I mean, traffic there is insane. And a lot of two-wheelers. And you have to understand, like, this is one of the huge growth centers for the motorcycle industry. It's also one of the huge growth centers for the world economy. There's a lot of things going on. So it's it's good to see that they're taking their their emissions really seriously. And in fact, that might be part of the issue here is that they're maybe taking their emissions a little too seriously. I, I disagree with that point, and I'll get to it in a second. Yeah, sure. But but it is this idea of like they've they've just moved from basically a Euro three to a Euro four standard. They're gonna skip Euro five or BS five completely and say that they want to get to what they call BS six, which would be like Euro six by twenty twenty. So when you look at the time scale of what's going on in the European Union in terms of emissions, this is on a much more truncated uh, time frame in terms of getting to Euro 6 compliant levels of, of emissions. Well, that could be extreme depending on what that Euro 6 is, right? I'd want to know, well, what is it? When like, you look at it, I mean, it's like you basically run on water. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, no, I mean, it, it's stringent. It's tough. And there's a lot more to go into, you know, you know, as well as I do, that Euro 4 is more than just tailpipe emissions. It goes into... Uh, a shop manual has to be made available. You have yeah. to be able to have a certain diagnostic system set yeah. on the, the, the vehicle. And it should be readily readily available for end users, et cetera, et cetera. It's a there's big a deal. Whole, there's a lot more going on to it than just what's coming out of the tailpipe, and noise is a big part of it as well now. So, yeah, I would have to dive down into the regulations to see what the, the big changes are, but there is a, there is certainly a, a big push with, with carbon dioxide and noxious gases and, and these uh, regulatory things. The story here, though, is the switch from BS3 to BS4 caused a huge issue in India where 700,000, kind of depends on the source that you believe, 700,000 to 1.4 million vehicles were on the verge of being unsellable, mostly because the manufacturers and the dealers didn't think that the government was going to adhere to its time schedule on, on switching. And they thought they were going to get some leeway and get some concessions. And like the Indian Supreme Court straight up was just like, no, you guys have known about this for five and a half years. You're not ready. Tough cookies. You're going to take it on the on the nose. So it ended up um, the the expiration date was the end of March. The Supreme Court ruling was March 29th. And in like that three day period, 29th to the 31st, 
they unloaded, I think, the, again, the reports are a little sketchy. Roughly, they say 60% of all the vehicles ended up getting sold, but like they were taking, or sorry, 90% of all the vehicles. Ended 90%? Up getting, 90%. Of 700 to 1.1 million or 1.4 1. 1. million. 1.4 million ended just, up getting just, sold just, because dealers were selling stuff up to 60% off. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so they were good basically time to fire buy sailing. whatever it is that you wanted. Whatever it is you're in the market for, that was the time to grab cars, it. bikes. It mostly Tata Bajaj. Yeah, the the issue was mostly with trucks and bikes, um, which are uh, the those are what sell. You know, you got trucks to move things around. Most people get around by car. Having a, a passenger vehicle is is either a luxury or it's a part of like most a taxi people get around service. by bike. You mean? Sorry, thank you, thank yeah. you. By bike. Oh, what did I say? Car. Yeah. Yeah, that's not right. No. By bike. Yeah, which is kind of cool. I like that. Like, that's a smart way of getting people around. It's kind of crazy when you look at like some of the traffic pictures. Sure, but you know, we're, when you've got four of your family members and your goat or whatever hoofed animal on your, I wasn't even thinking in that perspective. Just like when you see like, <laughs> it's like there's no traffic rules whatsoever. Like you just have people just zipping oh, around man, it's because right. it's sure. it's a leviathan of of transportation. And I've heard it. It's harrowing to be part of to to ride in around or drive pilot whatever it is in that situation but it sounds like a good time to me i've done the diet coke version in turkey yeah and was like no way you could not pay me enough money to do that ever again because it's like there are no rules red lights one-way streets it doesn't matter yeah you know it's just whatever you can get away with i can't imagine it in in like southeast asia or india where some of these populations are so dense where that's what just, makes me that's why i worry i'm not worried but i wonder like with this ruling it's like okay you can't sell that thing what's keeping somebody from just buying one not registering it like i'd love to know the registration and how it's enforced and where like it, i don't understand the the structure there all i do think of is these huge amounts of people all at once so you just get lost in the shuffle of a billion people you know commuting through downtown mumbai i'm sure i'm sure I'm sure you can get away with it just as you can get away with it here yeah. in, in America. You know, sure. you know, I, I'm sure there's, I'm sure you're right to a certain extent, but these are also countries where like motorcycles have front license plates. Yeah. You know, and you yeah, have to get point. a, and you have to get a yearly inspection. You have to get your puck, your PUC. And you know, so like there what is the some fuck? regulation. I don't know how hard it's enforced. And, um, you know, even some people made some jokes in the comments where it's like, well, if you know India, those dealers are going to be able to sell it to themselves. So it's on yeah, the sure. books and now it's it's sold and they're going to sell it secondhand to the guy that comes in through the door. And, you that's, know, there's ways around it if you want to play US the shell dealers, game. That's the same thing U.S. dealers do, but for different reasons. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's a little of that. I just thought it was really staggering to think about. 700,000 to 1.4 million vehicles. Yeah, it's a huge amount. Just just in a three-day window could have been not sold. Like there was, there was I think the estimate was like 600 million, um, what was euros, I think, or dollars. I can't remember the currency, but just there was a huge amount of money on the table here that, that could have gone up in smoke. And that was, I think, the issue that like the manufacturers and the dealers were going to kind of hope for is like, hey, you're going to. You're gonna light this this kind of profit on fire. You're gonna light this kind of cash on fire. Yeah, right. Yeah, and they got serious about it. So it'll be interesting to see how they deal with moving to the BS six uh, emission standard in three years. You know, they're gonna have to make some cuts. The manufacturers are gonna have to come up with some some stuff. Well, how how does it affect us? That's the question for the. I would imagine most listeners are like why again, even though yeah, it's great. There's billion people there. Why why should I give a shit? 
And I would say, actually, there's big enough of a number that I would think it might have some ripple effect through through the manufacturers, especially if they decided, hey, I'm going to pull a bunch of these bikes out of India in this time frame and then force them into other markets or something like that. I think that's legitimate, a legitimate thing. I, you know, that was, I don't know if I brought that up or someone else did, but we were talking about, well, you know, here's, these bikes are going to be shipped to Southeast Asia where this isn't an issue right yeah, now. Yeah, sure. Um, and the right, I mean, a lot of these bikes are bikes that would never make it to the American soil. They're really made for these um, more developing countries where, you know, 150 cc's is, that's a big bike. Yeah. You know, that's a people mover. Yeah. Another knock on effect is the emissions rules in general. Like, hey, this is a big enough thing where manufacturers need to be mindful of it. It's just going to drive emission standards to be more stringent over the course of time more and more. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's kind of tough to see how that's going to shape out right now in Trump America. Um, especially with the EPA's budget getting slashed and there's, you know, they even see, you know, congressmen putting bills out to, to abolish the EPA. So that's a big question mark. But I think on the long term, if you look at the aggregate 20 years down the line, American emission standards are only going to get more stringent. Yeah. European standards already have been legislated to get more stringent over time. Same as we're seeing with India. Um, countries like China are, are, are having to deal with this. Because they have, you know, horrible air conditions. Major issues, yeah. And, you know, and they're, they're, why do we think electrics are so hot right now in China? Because there's a huge push for that kind of technology to help clean up the air and, and deal with it. So it's not going away. It's certainly not going away. And, you know, it's a huge, it's a huge thing to think about. Moving on, I wanted to talk to you about, this is kind of another kind of high level thing, but um, uh, the investors behind, Dorna Sports, which is the media rights holder for MotoGP, World Superbike. I believe they run the Spanish Superbike uh, series, the CEV. They got their, their fingers in a lot of things. So the two primary investors are uh, Bridgepoint Capital and the Canadian Pension Plan Investment Board. So basically Canada's uh, pension fund uh, are the two major backers for, for Dorna. And they, um, according to the financial sector, are basically using Dorna as a piggy bank. What's that all about? What's that all about? Um, oh, it's there? kind of it's kind of complicated, and and, and it's, it's really- super complicated. And I don't. <laughs> I'm looking at it like, what kind of an amazing shell game is it to be in high level hedgy fundy style investment? Yeah. Like there, it's like a. I, I've read the article. And I'm like, oh my god, Jensen, you're gonna have to explain this because I don't get how they could possibly do that. The biggest question for me is when Dorna decided to, oh yeah, we want to be part of that. We're gonna sell to these people. Mm-hmm. Did they know that this was a possibility? Is this a normal thing? Is that like to be able to do something like this? Where I'm like, okay, I'm gonna take a bunch of money from you, and it's gonna be on you by the time it's done. Like, so if I make a bunch of money, good on all of us, but if I don't, it's tough titties for you, right? So that's what I want to know is how does that go? Yeah, so there's a lot going on here. So we should start and say that these investors are basically using Dorna's credit to get a loan for 889 million euros. So (laughs) almost a billion dollars. Uh, and it's, it probably is a billion dollars, isn't it? It's Euro? really close. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I haven't done the math to see what the current ex- currency exchange is right now, but it's close to a billion dollars. Yeah. And it's being done through what's called a dividend recapitalization. 
which is which is like an orwellian like double think thing it means something in the financial sector but you can just understand it as it's it's a loan it's a loan. It's, like, quantity, it's, like, it's, it's like quantitative you going in, easing. It's you going into the bank and saying, hey, I'm Jensen. I'm a cool guy. I got a good credit rating. How much money will you give me that I can pay you back over time? And the bank being like, oh, Jensen, uh, you run a pretty good racing series. Let's give you a billion dollars. And I'd be like, cool, thanks. But the difference is it's not me going into the bank. It's like, hey, Quentin, um, I'm going to buy you. Let's just assume that that's not illegal. I now own you. Yeah. I want a billion dollars. But I, I've already I've already gotten too many loans. My credit's no good now. I've got too many things on the books. But you're good. But you That's why I bought you. You you've got some good credit. You go into the bank and you go get that loan and then give me the money. That's basically what's going on uh-huh. here. And it allows these investors to get money without having to take on or without having to give up an equity position in their holdings, which would be Dorna Sports. So they don't need to take on outside investors. So this is the lev- they're not going to. This is leveraging. They're leveraging. They're leveraging it through debt. So the, I don't. You're going to have to. Okay. So 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 Dorna is basically borrowing this money. They now have a debt that they have to repay. So let's say it's a billion dollars. I can't do the math in my head, but let's just say it's a 30-year loan. They're going to pay I don't know, $20 million a year back every year. And they can do that because Dorna makes like 200 million euros in revenue every year. You know, that's just that's just spitballing. I think they say the actually the take-home income is quite less, but they they're rumored to make about 200 million a year. I think it's 20 million in profit. Yeah. But the bank's looking at them and be like, hey, you guys make $200 million a year. You can totally afford to pay 10% of what you make every year back to us. So we'll give you that loan. That's, that's the credit worthiness. They're like, yeah, you're a good investment. You know, This is, this is a debt that's not going to be burdensome. Well, this is the third time that Bridgepoint Capital and the Canadian Pension Fund have done this to Dorna. Yikes. Which you say yikes, but it's actually kind of a good thing. Because usually when you do a dividend recapitalization, that's that's an investor pulling the ripcord. That's an investor coming along being like, all right, Quentin, I need some money. You've got good credit. You're going to go into the bank and get the loan and give it to me. And then you're going to declare bankruptcy. So I get to keep my money. You end up taking the fall for it. And I don't care. Because I didn't I got know that was money. a shell game that could happen. It is absolutely a shell game that could happen. And there, there's, there's different instruments to protect the banks used to protect themselves from this. You know, they can make the the investors uh, become personally liable for the debt as well. Or not personally liable because they're corporations, but they can be on the hook for it as well. It's all how you structure the deal. But absolutely, this is one of those things where it's like, yeah, you go take that loan, declare bankruptcy, no big deal. And that's, that's usually a dividend recapitalization is a huge red flag. In this case, though, it's kind of interesting because this is the third time and uh, actually, you know, a, a testament to how good the A&R commenters on a couple. We had a couple guys with Bloomberg terminals looking at the debt and looking at the terms of the debt. Bloomberg terminal. It's a thing you would know in the finance world. Sounds like a good it, band name. It's like uh, you spay. I forget what the, the the fee is. I think it's like ten thousand dollars a year to have access to this financial it's terminal. A, so you get a dashboard of like I can look up anybody's shit. Any modern day wall street movie that you watch and they've got like the computer with the graphs and all yeah. that that's a bloomberg terminal probably okay. uh we had access to them in business school super cool is way over my head but a couple of anr readers have this so a couple of anr readers are, are hip and they're looking at the debt and it would actually maybe going on here it looks like they might be actually restructuring some of the debt so this almost billion dollars a lot of that might actually be being used to pay off one of the previous loans that was well, they take out uh before it was um 
In 2011, it was 420 million euros. In 2014, it was 715 million euros. <laughs> so rates have actually come down considerably in that yeah. in that time frame. Yeah. Rates are about to go back yeah. up, which so it might makes be why they're taking out. At say if it's three percent instead of seven percent, right. and it is around three percent. Yeah. Okay, so because it's three percent, and you've got all this money that you're owed at seven, six let's or pay eight. that off, right? And then we'll owe the rest of that. Okay, okay, all right. So, so I that might it. not be too bad. And I did, I did get some little inside information that the money being taken off the table is probably closer to two hundred million euros, which would suggest that the other. What is that? Four or six hundred and eighty-nine million is going towards paying off previous debts. Yeah. So interesting in that space, but it's still kind of interesting to see. And I think this is a great lesson in in high-level finance. And I just, I literally just watched The Big Short with um, Christian Bale and who's the guy from The Office? Michael Scott is the character's name. I have no idea. Ah, crap. I'm horrible with actress names. There's okay. some there's some big names. Great movie. All Great you had movie. to say was Christian Bale. Everyone swoon. swoon. Oh, he's so good. Brad Pitt's in it. Yeah. Um huh. yeah, really it's interesting. Called the short? The the big short. Okay. And it is a great, it's a great movie to watch because it explains so well how the uh re- recession, the recent recession came about. It explains that whole process. Better than Wall Street, too. <laughs> Well, yeah, but there's no motorcycle okay. chase scene, so uh, right. equal in my mind. <laughs> we, we should watch it. We should watch it. Okay. Because I think you'd enjoy it. I, I'm sure I would, and that would be nice to be able to bounce shit off of you while we're watching it. Yeah. Like, Sorry, Jensen, I'm going to have to ask you some questions, right? Yeah, and, and that's the thing. They, I think they do a pretty good way of characterizing it and making people understand that how the banks are basically gambling with our money. Uh-huh. Uh, and this is very similar. This is, this is high-level Wall Street bullshit. Where it's just like, yeah, I can use this other corporation's good credit rating to leverage it out even more. Because a company like Bridgepoint, and and you have to understand how pension funds work in the sense that they're investing money on behalf. Yeah, sure. You know, anytime you start getting, anytime you start getting more than a hundred thousand dollars together, you're going to start investing it because you can use that money to make more money. That's what Wall Street's all about. They don't create anything. They don't build anything. They just take money and figure out ways to make it turn into other money. And they're basically just making bets. And that's what the pension funds does for Canada. And that's what Bridgepoint do. They go in, they find companies and they find opportunities. They find investment instruments and they put their money into it because they think it's a good bet to get more money back. So a company like Bridgepoint, which is a private equity firm, if they can get loaned a billion dollars at 3% interest, I guarantee you, if you look at their books, and those should be public records. I haven't looked into it, but they'll tell you how much they make each year. And a good investment firm is probably making anywhere between eight and 15% annually. If they're, yeah. you know, if the economy is strong. Sure. Um, but you know, double digit growth is considered that's your goal. Right. So if you're getting money at 3% and you're making it at, and you turn that into 10%, you just netted a 7% gain. Boom. All day long. So why not use someone like Dorna sports for their credit to get that money, to make that investment. So you can't get too mad at them for it. Cause that's what they do. And it's the same, but it's something you have to be aware of. And private equity firms work a little bit differently than venture capital firms, just in the sense of what their goals are. So you look like at a company, you can look at your company, for example. So Alta Motors, I don't know completely what their uh, investment uh, group looks like, but I imagine there's some venture capital firms, there's some angel investors, and there might be a private equity firm in there. And they all have different goals and different reasons for investing. And we'll be expecting different returns and will thus operate differently. For, for those returns. You look at someone like Zero though, which is earned by, owned by Invis, which is a private equity firm, they are going to have different goals than your investors do. And mostly private equity investors are looking for 
a sustainable business that will have a strong yearly return every year. And that's why the Canadian pension funds involved and, and a certain well. amount of growth. There would be one thing if it's always, I'm going to get 3% on this amount of money, but I want to see 3% on more money next year and 3% on more money next year, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Right. I would say it's more sustainable growth. So like I bring up, I bring up Alton in contrast to zero because, uh, Invis, which is funding zero, they're looking for something like what's going to make us hundred million dollars every year once it matures. You know, what's going to just keep printing money for our investors? Whereas a venture capitalist or an angel investor, they might be like, what's going to give me that big hit? I'm going to invest a million dollars into you with the hope that it makes me 200 or 200 million. Uh, what I say? Tw- 20 million yeah. or 200 million dollars yeah. down the road. I'm looking for that 10x return. I'm looking yeah. for that, you know, big, that big win. And I'm only, and I only need that one in 10 or one in 50 times, whatever that, that they're, they're all structured a little differently. Sure. I only need that big hit, you know, on a very rare basis because it's a really big hit when it's big, when it's, it's big, huge. it's big. Yeah, sure. And when I lose a little, I lose a little. And then the more you get, the more you can take more risks on those big hits and the bigger the hits and right. et cetera, et cetera. It takes money to make right. money. So there's a little bit of different priorities. So it is kind of good. And it's the same thing with the pension fund. They're sitting there like, what's going to give us strong yearly returns to keep growing this pension fund so we can keep paying old Canadian people that are retired? So they're a little bit um, more risk averse, which is good. But again, they're a financial institution. They're always looking out for their bottom line. If it came down to not having Grand Prix motorcycle racing or a bunch of Canadians not getting their retirement fund, guess which one they're going to pick? Sure. And it's not the motorcycle racing. So there's like that little bit of a risk. I don't, um, I don't sit up late at night worrying about MotoGP or World Superbike, but do understand that there is now a debt burden that Dorna is going to have to pay. And let's say that number is twenty million dollars a year. That's twenty million dollars a year that they're not investing back into high definition cameras. That they're not investing into a new, you know, racetrack venue thing in Shanghai. That's people that they're not hiring to, you know elevate their social media presence or to, you know, make their live world feed better or to help. Or it's encourage. you paying $200 instead of one fifty nine ninety nine. Well, that's the other part of it. And when you start making the journalist media people a profit center in your business, this is part of that result. Um, it put a lot of things interesting. I, you know, I had uh, Carmelo Esbaleta is the head of Dorna Sports and uh, a mutual friend of ours who I won't name once told me that, you know, he's a glorified accountant. Like his main job is to keep the investors happening. And I never really understood what that meant until this story came along. Cause I was like, Oh yeah, no, you really are at the mercy of an investment firm and a pension fund. And your only job here is to be profitable and serve their bottom lines. Yeah. You go and you do your motorcycle racing. But it's like the same thing. It's sort of like telling like a motorcycle racer, like your job isn't your number one job isn't to go race on the racetrack. Your number one job is to be a spokesperson for your sponsor. And it's that disconnect where it's like, you know, we have to think like, oh, you know, Dorner should only be concerned about, you know, making motorcycle racing good. It's like, no, no, that's a big part of their business. But at the end of the day, they serve at the leisure of their investors. And that's who they that's who they're held accountable for. And I put a little a couple things in perspective for me. Yeah, it was interesting. I don't like. I don't see it as a negative. It's just what made it just made me want to ask a bunch of questions, right? Right. I don't. I didn't see it as like a, oh man, like there's the 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 bells tolling for the end of MotoGP. It's just kind of like, for me, it's just more negative corporate 
bullshit, right? To me, it's it's negative in some ways, it's positive in others, but overriding, it has that schmarmy, you know, I don't know, hedge fundy feel where uh, the hedge fund person's like, oh, we only play with our own money. We're making money off of our own money. Yeah, until it all goes horribly wrong and it trickles down to the pensioners, right? Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a very cynical view that we've yep. we've created of bankers it that is. that is well earned but isn't the whole truth. Um I mean, absolutely, absolutely there's there's banking institutions and there's bankers that are playing a high wire act with other people's money, knowing full damn well if it all goes sideways that the American people or the world population will bail them out. Hence the the recession. Yeah, and again, go watch this big the, the movie The Big Short. It's great, um, and and showing that like, hey, you know, like these guys like literally don't think anything's bad. Like if it, if they go horribly horribly wrong, it still isn't going to be their skin in the game, and they were right. Um, but I think on the flip side, like I think some of that perspective is what has given bankers a bad name through time. And I mean like, in, like over the last 3000 years sure. and then some of the connotations that come with that, uh, you know, with this, I don't think there's anything really wrong there. I think it's a little, it's a little worrying to be like, okay, so, you know, my motorcycle racing series is helping you get a loan. I mean, it's, it's fine as long as Bridgepoint and the Canadian pension fund are, uh, on honorable actors. Because let's say Dorna defaults on that loan. The you know smart big business and the cynical big business would let it fail. Be like, oh, you defaulted? Enjoy your bankruptcy. We're out. We'll write that, we'll write that that debt off on our books and sure. it'll, it'll work for us. We we win either way. Now, if you know, Bridgepoint and the Canadian pension, uh, the P the C P P I B, try saying that three times fast are honorable actors and let's say Dorna defaults, you know, if they came back in and bailed them out or, yeah. or ensure that would have, you know, that's, that's the safety net. And we don't know if that's there or not because that's a discussion that's in a closed door uh, boardroom, but you know, it, it's not, it's different. It's not like this is how Moto America is structured. This isn't how, you know, British Superbike is structured. It's, it's different. Um, and I think, I think fans need to understand that difference because it probably is going to make some decisions make a little bit more sense. Right on. Thanks for uh, bringing it to our attention. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was an interesting story. I'm, I'm, um, we'll see what conversations it creates in Austin. Let's put it that way. Oh yeah, yeah fair enough. Uh, what do you want to talk about? You want to talk about GoPro, BMW, the U.S. Senate, Husky, Norton, which are poison? All the things. Uh, I like the GoPro one. It's interesting because it. I don't know. There's a lot of people that use that type of stuff, right? To, the, to record themselves in this day and age. It's like it didn't happen unless you have pictures, right? Right. And that's why I posted this story up. So so what it is, is GoPro has got a trade up. I'm doing the little air quotes that you can't see. A program for the older models. And I posted it to ANR just because there's so many people in our industry and in our space yeah. that have GoPro cameras or have action cameras and they're mounting them on their helmets and on their bikes and they're taking videos and they're putting them to YouTube or they're sharing with friends or whatever it is you do if your videos in your own private time it's none of my business. So what's the uh, what's the story so so basically uh gopro well yeah i'll back it up a little bit you have to kind of understand what's going on in this space first and it's a lot like what's happened in the smartphone space like you remember like when like i'm an iphone guy so i'm like remember when the iphone first came out and you're like oh wow it's in a smartphone and it's got wi-fi and you can do this and it's got these apps and then later like 
the 3G model came out, and now the App Store is a thing. And like, like each progressive model from like the iPhone, the first iPhone to the second, the third, and the fourth, there was there was there's reasons that you would get it. You're like, oh, this one's got like this one's got the 3G network, and this one's got the LTE network. This one's and, got a 12 megapixel camera. Well, and that's where it started getting. That's where things started kind of going sideways because it's like now the only reason I'm buying this is because the cameras like. 12 megapixels instead of 10 megapixels and the processor is like 10% faster, but the old processor did everything I needed to do. Like there's not a really good reason for me to run out right now and buy a new iPhone. If my iPhone doesn't work, you know, or, or if my iPhone still works fine. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's not really, I'm not really getting a better user experience. It's not really, yep. there's no real driver there other than it's shinier, it's newer. Maybe it's a little bit thinner. The camera's got a couple more yeah, yeah, yeah. features. Sure. All right. All right. Whatever. There's not, it's, it's planned obsolescence to a point. To a point. Well, it's a lot harder to plan that obsolescence right. now because, because there aren't features, right? You're just not getting that hockey stick of growth. And that's the issue with the smartphone realm. And that's been the issue for Apple. Apple's seen their smartphone sales taper off the smartphone industry as a whole is starting to kind of reach its equilibrium it's not growing really anymore yeah because everyone's got one and they don't really need to upgrade anymore well it's the same way in the camera business the action excuse me the wearable camera action camera business because when it came out it was its own new thing not really anything came like it especially when gopro came out especially when gopro gopro really was the was the big hit but there was companies before them contour contour was one and now everyone's got one you know like polaroid i don't know if polaroid but like sony's got one no uh, yeah polaroid's got one yeah i've got a polaroid one um i should have known that but everyone's kind of got one and you look at like the video technology 4K video is like the big thing right now, but you have to have like a serious editing deck to to really handle 4K video. So really everyone's kind of working with 1080p or 720p. And once your camera does 1080p at like 60 frames a second, like why would you upgrade? Looks pretty good. Why would you upgrade anything better? Because your TV can't show the difference. The, the plateau of performance. At, I mean, the 4K, I'm sure you can tell. But really, is it that big of a my, deal? My computer display is 4K and my TV is 1080p. And it's like, yeah, I see a difference, but not a big one. Not enough to justify I'm not the rushing cost. out to like go get a 4K TV. If I buy another TV, it'll be a 4K TV, but I'm not, yeah. I'm not there yet. Sure. And then, and then all the equipment that comes along to handle that video. So like, you're kind of at that point where like, well, why would I upgrade? Like, yeah, if you have like one of the original GoPros, of course, you might be thinking about upgrading because the battery life sucks and the video quality sucks and the frame well, this rate is what sucks. got me. So I bought a I don't remember which which iteration. I think it was a four. I had had a two. Maybe. Right. I think. I can't remember. I skipped a generation. I had one and it was great and it worked great and I had no issue with it and the videos were great. If you watch me crash the crap out of my Street Fighter 848, it was probably on that that camera, uh, the original one that I had, I beat the crap out of it. it Is this the one that we dirt. saw like go tumbling yeah, down the track? Right? Exactly. <laughs> so I think that was my first one. Don't remember. But then I bought because it was like, here's the newest, latest, greatest. It does this, this, this. I don't remember what it was, but it was enough for me to justify taking the plunge on the new one. Okay, I do want that newer one because it had some feature that I liked or whatever it was. And I get it, and it sucks the batteries quick, and it was more of a pain in the butt to use, and I found myself using it less and less yeah. and less and less. And frankly, I haven't gone to my GoPro and said, oh, I'm going to go for a ride and have this on. I mean, 
I like having videos of my dirt bike rides or street bike rides or whatever, but not enough to, I, mean, I that's, there's a couple things happening here. Number one, my life, I've been balancing more towards actually experiencing the shit and not worrying about recording it. Okay. Which there's a little bit thing. of that. Yeah. Yeah. And the other part is I didn't want to use this thing cause it was a pain in the butt and I wasn't going to buy the newest, latest, greatest because fuck them. I hate that. I hate that planned obsolescence because the next it was like the next year or within months, a newer, later, greater thing came out. And I it was middle fingers in the air to GoPro because I was like, I'm not doing it. I'm not going to play that game. Well, with this, that is, this is a great like you you say that the reason they're doing that, like having just finished the, the finance yep. talk, the reason they're doing that is they had to go public. Yep. Yeah. You know, when do they do for, that for their investors? Because that they had a lot of venture capital investors and venture capital. They're always looking for that 10 extra turn. It's like a rule of thumb. Vulture capital. How do I? It is. It is. How am I going to make my money back tenfold or more? Yeah. And there's investors out there that are sitting there going, they only want to invest. How am I going to make my money back hundredfold or more? Yeah. You know, craziness going on. So they said, all right, so, well, then so, we're going to have some planned obsolescence. Well, stuff it's not so here. much planned obsolescence, but it's just this idea of like, we need to show a shit ton of revenue. We need to sell a shit ton of models and GoPro's whole thing was we need to flood this space. We need to be the camera and yeah. we need to be like the Xerox of the copy world. And they've done that. And they, right? and they've done a good job of that, but they did it because they were getting pushed by their investors to go public because the only way the investors are going to make that 10 X plus return is if the company has an IPO and that's when they can get to dump their stocks. That's when the, the price goes up that's their big payday. And that's, that was the whole thing with the dot-com crash was everyone was, they were, they were just doing the short sighted business because You're all talking about the early 2000s dot-com yes, crash. Yes. Yeah. Because they had this short sighted business plan mindset of just getting to that IPO. Who cares what we're doing 10 years from now? If there's no, as long as we get our the, IPO and our investors make money back or we as inventors make our money back and we can just dump the burden onto the normal, you know, lay person investor. Um, and any Tom, Dick, or Harry had, was getting a right. website, and it was like TomDickAndHarry.com that does this random shit. Right. And it was like, I gotta have it. And gotta then, it, do it. but there was nothing to it. There was no, there, where's the beef, right? right. There was nothing to but, that, a lot of those things at that time. And that's why it's called a bubble. And again, go watch the big short because they talk a lot about what a bubble is yeah. and how it pertained to the housing market and how that led to the mortgage. The way we package mortgages in the financial business and how that was a bubble and then it burst and everything collapses and that's that's history. So you're saying I should invest in bubblicious? It's a chewing gum? Yes, it exactly. Good? Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, you should short it big time, <laughs> bigly. <laughs> bigly? Big big chew doesn't blow good enough bubbles, man. It doesn't. <laughs> wow. Sorry. So, so it's the, good though, it's because it's shredded. You know how you yeah, because know, it's like yeah. chewing, it, it feels really a, good. Yeah, I was a kid once, I yeah, understand. <laughs> so to get back to the cameras though. So now, so now GoPros had their IPO. They've they've done their planned obsolescence. They've they've dumped model after model after model. Yeah. And here's the issue. Now it's a commodity. Now every brand has a, a camera of their own. They all pretty much do the same a thing. Commodity being defined as something more We're, ubiquitous. The that, products are indistinguishable from each other. The products okay, from different so brands a lot are indistinguishable. Okay. All right. So a GoPro camera that films at 4K with 60 hertz is going to work pretty much the same as the Sony camera that films in 4K yeah. at 60 hertz. And as long as there's and, a good system to attach it, which everybody in their, in their the know, Tom Dixon Harry's of the world have made ways to attach these cameras everywhere on everything. Yeah, and, and, and that's the other part of it. So, so now it's become commoditized. Now brands are trying to distinguish themselves on different things. So they might say like, hey, we've got the best image stabilization. You could... Mount this to the side of a paint shaker and your picture is going to be per 
you know, crystal clear and perfect. Or like what GoPro is doing, they have a suite of cloud services that are storing your video and helping you edit it because editing a 4K video is a serious thing. Yeah. You, know, you can spend tens of thousands of dollars on a high-end Take computer. Take it to the cloud. Okay. I got to do I like it. That. So that's sure. part of their, because the other issue, and I don't, I don't know if you were getting there when you were talking about like why you don't use your camera, is who's going to sit around and spend their time on the weekend editing it? Yeah. So like, yeah, I went out for an eight-hour ride on my bike. Am I really going to spend like three days editing together a cool video to share with my friends? I mean, maybe, maybe if some cool stuff happened, maybe if that's what you're into, maybe if you have some free time to kill, but the big reason, like I don't use my GoPros that often is because I don't have the time to sit down and put together a video unless I'm working on a video project. What's the point? I look at all the videos that I have submitted and I think of how boring it must be for anybody that isn't me. Like I can go back in and I haven't, but I could go back in and relive that 15 minute ride session and at, and out in the Tillamook range and probably be stoked. Like, Oh yeah, I remember that. But really, there's not you. Ha- you have to edit in and cut it. It would be like our um, the OIE trip on the Terracorsa. Yeah, it'd be great if I could put that collate that in a in a way that made the whole journey go within 15 minutes or less. Because that's what the day and age means. You need to have if you're gonna if you're gonna get people interested in something, it's got to be short. It's got to be sweet. This is the way it is. Maybe that's what I'd want to do. And may, if that is the case, that is the biggest thing that I wouldn't do, which is edit. I would be like, I download some software, it'd be cumbersome, and I would lose interest. And I, you know, it's like squirrel onto the next thing. Right. So, so GoPro understands that, and they've built a whole cloud suite of software for this very reason. And that's one of the things they're trying to use to differentiate themselves with. Ah. And that's part of, I think, the reason that they're so. This finally get to it. This program is basically if you have an older GoPro model. You can trade it in and get $100 off a GoPro Hero 5, or I think it's $50 off the GoPro Session Hero 5 Session, which is the small one that looks like a little cube. Mm. And the whole idea there, and I think the reason they're pushing that was, one, not only are sales probably lower than they want, but two, they want to get everyone on this cloud platform. And this goes back to what we call a platform theory, like a platform-based business plan. And this is like, this is Facebook. This is the Apple yep. uh, store. Yep. This is Google. Um, Google, Google to an extent. Google's Holy a platform crap, now. Google. Google went from a search engine to a platform. And like once you got, yeah. and really it was Gmail. Once they got you into Gmail yeah. and used, and Gmail became your passcode into everything else Google. Are you on Google th- Plus? Should I friend you on Google Plus? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm totally all over Google Plus, <laughs> as is everyone else. But that's the thing. That's why Facebook's business model is so defensible because all my friends are on Facebook. We're all there. Yeah. And if some competitor comes along, if Jensen Book comes along, no one's going to switch because no one else is on Jensen Book. They're already all on Facebook. So you need to have like a mass exodus of friends to, 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 to switch platforms. But that happened with MySpace to Facebook, did it not? It did. And, and that's... And that's the interesting part. Like that's so hard, but that was also early, yeah, early, sure. early days. It was just when, enough. It was a perfect storm of good marketing and, and this and is a why better product. And this is why Facebook spent a billion dollars to buy Instagram because Instagram came out. Here's a new social network. And they knew that it's this is just yeah. photos. It's very cool and it's very clever. But you get the user base, you get everyone on it, then you start adding on features. Hey, you can do video besides photos. Oh, and after that, you can start messaging people directly. Oh, now here's a stream of all the content that all your people. But you know, think about it. It's almost it's almost turning into Facebook already. So that's the yeah, thing. Yeah, but without a lot of the bullshit that Facebook has, so a lot of people are, and especially Generation Z kids are like, I don't necessarily want 
mom, dad, well, and Uncle Bill looking at my shit, and I can have an Instagram handle and do this on my own. And right? that's the thing. And that was the thing. Instagram was cu- was capturing the younger yep. uh, audience, and that's what got Facebook worried. And so they nipped it in the bud, and they paid a premium for it. That's the same thing that's going on with GoPro here, I think. I think they're looking at like, hey, we've got our cloud services. We want you to get on with our products because it's only the Hero 5s that work with the cloud uh, services, I think maybe the Hero Four Pluses do. I'm not like super good on my GoPro products. Oh, that was what it was. I bought the Hero Four, and then when the Plus came out, yeah. it was just like middle Meh. fingers in the Meh. air. You can just lick them. Oh man, I lick, hate I don't that. Want to lick I hate it so much. That's gross. Um, but that's the idea of like, okay, so now we want like as soon as we get you to start uploading all of your videos into our cloud, and as soon as you become reliant on our software to pick out those cool moments when things happened and to edit it for you, now. You can't move. You can't go to Sony's platform because we're not going to let you download your videos or it's going to be a pain in the ass to get oh, yeah. your videos turned over. Sure. So now you're locked into our cloud service, which means now you're locked into our hardware and that's how we're going to sustain growth which over time. Which is how iTunes became so ubiquitous for right. file sharing music. And they, and they probably realized like everyone that's probably bought, everyone who's got an old camera that was going to upgrade just blindly, like, like a lemming to the new ones. They've already done that because yeah, these sure. cameras have been out for, I think, at least. It will take this. And but I yeah. will absolutely, I will absolutely have a go. I'm going to go down and look and I'm going to ask myself, all right, do they use the same batteries? Because I invested in batteries for this little thing. And can I, how, what, what are the, I will look at this instead of not even giving a F. And, and me right? too. And right? me too. Sure. You want a hundred bucks off of a, I would assume a $400 camera. Yeah, so Ish. 100 bucks off a of 400 camera. So basically, it's going to be about 300 bucks for a Hero 5, $250 for a Hero 5 session. But I have to turn mine in, which is a bit of like, oh, it's a pain in the ass. I want, I kind of uh, like the idea of having that second camera, but I can see where they they just want that off the market, out of it completely. They want you with the new thing. With the new thing they don't even want to see you with on this thing. service yep. above it. Yeah. And then you get you hooked and they get you into the platform. And that's, I mean, that's just smart business. Yeah, sure. I can't fault them for no, it. No, 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 not at all. It'd be not. nice if my camera lasted longer than an hour on the battery, but yeah. you know, whatever. I can't fault them for that. I can fault them for not having a, a, a superior product, but I don't know what the superior product would be. But I'm not going to be that tempted to move to a, another platform unless like nikon came out with one that was super nikon rad. does have one well i'm gonna i'd have to look and but even the then i'd be wary of it because i'm a nikon guy but i i know that nikon does a certain thing very well and gopro fucking murdered this they did so good in the beginning and that first product got me hooked so well it's like riding Hondas. I start off on Hondas, and it's going to be tough to get me completely away from Hondas because they got me when I was young, and they put the hooks in, and it's tough to extract. Just like the tobacco industry and just yeah. like Michael Jackson. And Mountain Dew. And Mountain Dew. Why Michael Jackson? What, do you get your hooks in? You get, get, in? get them while they're young. Oh, yeah, right? Oh, I want to give a shout-out to our buddy Shane. Shane? Shane. No, 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 no. Different Shane. Okay. Uh, who listens to this show while he commutes on his helmet at one and a half times speed. So we probably sound like little birds to him, but he got in an accident while listening to the show car pulled out in front of him while he was on the bike. Could have been a lot worse than it was was in tears from one of my excellent puns. And it was clouded its vision. I mean, I hope the insurance company doesn't hear it because they're going to be like, Oh, he was distracted by the puns. Yeah. Right. But no, no, a car turned in front of him. He's okay. Bike's going to be okay. It's going to be a happy, happy ending to the story, but we're glad he's in one piece because that certainly could have been much, much worse. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that, Sean, yeah. but I'm stoked to hear that you're listening Shane, to the show. Shane. Shane, sorry, Shane. I hope uh, I hope everything ends up well. Yeah, and, and a shout out to my buddy Jimmy who came out to the track uh, to see me while I was up at uh, Sears Point. Go, Those Jimmy. Are- 
You know Jimmy. Which one was Jimmy? Wine, Gi- wine guy Jimmy. Wine guy Jimmy. Right on. Yeah, we'll talk about this after the show. We got to wrap this up. Good talk to you out there. Later. <laughs> give me, give me a level. Kickstands down. Kickstands down. Michael Jackson down with his <laughs> kickstand down. Dude, please. I hope you keep that <laughs> in there. That's, that's, that's a good, good one. Right? That's pretty that's, good. Yeah. Right. Uh, <laughs>